1: i'm jason Cander, and i'm ravi gupta and this is majority 54 the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds change votes and win elections ravi what's new well so much happening in my world right now i'm i've been watching this dog i have a dog for a
2: month because my buddy went to london i'm, I'm training myself i'm going up the ladder of responsibility so i've now gone from plants to dog The bigger news is my father is a candidate for New York State Senate.
1: I was wondering if you were going to want to talk about this. I'm excited. Okay.
2: Yeah. I I debated whether to bring it up, but it's public. I had dinner with my father on Sunday, and he was just like, look, I need your advice. And then he starts asking me about the seat. But it's like one of those things where you know when somebody sits down and asks you for advice, but you know they've already made up their mind. And he's describing the state Senate seat, which is Manhattan. Pretty, like, pretty you know, liberal seat. Like 150% Democratic seats. Yeah. And he's describing to me how he's going to win this seat. For those who are
1: not longtime listeners, you got to describe your dad's politics.
2: My father is a, is a very, very Trump Republican. A moderate Republican still is going to get their ass kicked in Manhattan. But my dad is very, very right wing. And he is explaining to me how he's going to win this seat. And So then I stop him and I'm like, look, you're a doctor. If I came to you with a tumor the size of a football and said, hey, I think I'm fine, you have a certain amount of expertise to be able to say, all right, that's bullshit. You're not fine. And so I was like, I've spent my life in politics. You don't even need to spend your life in politics to know this. But I then pulled up the data on the district, and I'm like, look, man, you cannot win this seat. So if you have a goal other than winning, then let's talk about what that goal is. But there's 0% chance you're going to win. And in the course of this conversation, he didn't know whether he was on the ballot or anything. He was just showing me like the GOP website where his bio is up as the candidate, the endorsed candidate already. I don't know how this happened so fast. He is the endorsed candidate by the Manhattan Republican Party for this New York State Senate seat. And so I'm like, all right, maybe the, the train hasn't left the station yet. Maybe he didn't. He's not the announced candidate and or he's not he's not their actual candidate. And so I then call up a buddy of mine who's my city councilman who knows, like, how to, like, verify these things. And lo and behold, my father is on the ballot. He's gotten the signatures. I don't know how any of this happened, by the way. Like, <laughs> he has gotten enough signatures to qualify for the ballot. And I know this is a longer than normal banter, but I actually think this is good because it gets to the mission of what we do. Right. So the conversation I had with my father is really instructive. We sit down for dinner and he's explained to me why he wants to run it. And I stopped him and I said, look, What's really going on here? Like, why do you want to run for the seat? And he basically describes the fact that the Manhattan Republican Party is like a community to him now. And they they are like, you know how this is when people try to recruit people to run for office. They're like nice to him. They know it's a suicide mission, but they're like, hey, like, you're our guy. And my dad feels special because he's been tapped for that. And this is kind of where it gets personal. But I also think where it's instructive for people who are listeners, I said to him, you are seven. He's about to be 70. I said, what do you want the last phase of your life to look like? Like, what do you want to do? And then we had this long conversation where he was like, I've kind of been a shitty father. He's, he's been married four times. And he was like, I can't undo those things. And he's like, I just, you know, he's basically like, I want to I do something I'm proud of. And I was like, look, man, you can't undo those things, but you could still be a good father for the rest of your life you know, he's in a relationship now with somebody who seems really cool. And I was like, you could get that right. You can spend more time with your kids. You could be an awesome father. And I was like, look, we we want that from you. Right. So like maybe put down the sword of like running for office and all this kind of stuff and then be better at these other things in your life. It's not too late. Like who cares what happened in the past? And I'm supposed to talk to him this afternoon, so I'll, I'll know probably by the time that this episode airs. But basically, I, I think I've, I'm close to convincing him not to run, and not just not to run because of politics. I don't really care about the politics. It's not like it, it's going to matter. He's going to get killed. But more because I do think that this is instructive for why people – get radicalized in certain ways, right? Why do they get involved? Why do they join that insurrectionist group? Or why do they run? Or why do they get more and more polarized? It's because there's communities inviting them in. And I think if we don't say, hey, we still have a bond, no matter what our different politics are or whatever, and you open the door for people, if you don't open that door, somebody else is opening the door for them, which can get really dangerous.
1: That's hugely instructive. I mean, as your friend, I'm just glad you got to have that actual conversation with your dad. It's kind of crazy that it was prompted by him getting on the ballot for state senate. But
2: <laughs> yeah, to his credit, he did. He, he at the end of it, he was like, "You're right." He really said that. I think I think he just wanted to hear that it's not too late. You know, I think it made me think of our audience a lot because I know our audience goes through a lot of this like whether I know it's not just somebody running for office but it's you know the person who they you can't get through to or whatever and I think try harder I guess is always the answer right for me I I just stopped trying with him and I think like just a little bit of effort I think it can make a huge difference here well I think to me the lesson
1: is you didn't you you talked to him about the politics of it but then you didn't enter into like a why would you believe these things what you did is you you did something he didn't expect which was what are your goals for the rest of your life? Like that's a much broader question that that sparks a much broader conversation.
2: Well, and like my, I don't care about the politics. He's not going to win the seat. I really don't care. And you, there's no, my dad can't get any more radicalized in any way. If he ran for New York State Senate, he'd probably be more moderate by the end of the process. But I do not care. I think. This is the last thing he needs. And I think if he decides not to run and dedicates the next, hopefully, you know, many decades of his life to getting certain things right that he hasn't gotten right yet, he'll be able to look back and be proud of it. So I know longer than normal update, but it, you know, probably more important than the fact that I'm dog sitting probably.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, plus like that commute to Albany, he's going to hate it. (laughs) yeah Yeah. Uh, anyway all right well that was awesome i'm glad you talked about it uh that i it doesn't segue perfectly into our next thing but like let's do it anyway which is uh we continue to stick with this opening segment that uh, is trivial and ravi tell the folks what you came up with because this is just chum in the water
2: so bill maher appeared on joe rogan i think yesterday and it was a long conversation a lot of interesting stuff in there But the reason why I'm flagging this is because, obviously, it gets your blood boiling. Nothing gets uh, the DMs humming like a a Joe Rogan clip on this show. But I find it interesting just because Bill Maher is a very prominent member of the media who's kind of of this alt-left libertarian world. And then Rogan is probably the most important media figure we have and somebody that people who are trending rightward are listening to more and more and more, including just eclectics who don't really have politics. So I figured this would be a good— clip for us to start with so let's play it
1: we are both seen as people who are sort of like commonsensical and that is what there is a hunger for i think in america more than anything is common sense yes five years ago no one was talking about abolishing the police you know there was no talk about uh you know (laughs) <laughs> pregnant men, and, you know. I mean, there was just, looting was yeah. still illegal, right? <laughs> you know, isn't there, that crazy? There was just there's so like, have I changed? No, because if someone had said twenty years ago, I, I I'm not sure looting is a bad thing. I would have opposed it then. See, yeah. I. So I haven't changed. All right, Jason, your response. All right, I have two initial thoughts. My first thought is that I do think that sometimes we have an imperfect understanding of the real meaning of the words liberal or progressive. What those two words don't mean are unchanged or like static in place, right? Like that's the thing. And, and so that doesn't mean like you're not a Democrat if you don't change at the same pace as the party. But I do often hear people say of the left, they'll say, well, you know, I haven't changed. The left has changed. And it's like, well, yeah, because that's the role the left plays in, in America or like in politics generally, right? Whereas when people on the right say, I haven't changed, the party has changed. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Because it's like, if you go further right, it's not just like you go more conservative, don't change anything, you you become more authoritarian. Whereas if if you go further left, uh, like, you know, in conventional American politics, not like in South American leftist authoritarianism, but like in conventional American politics, it means like, yeah, the party continued to push more and more change and and you weren't down with that. So that I think is a misunderstanding that some people have. Like I've, I've often said about Missouri democratic politicians, particularly from rural areas, you know, there's a few who, when people ask me about them, I'll describe them as progressive Democrats who stopped progressing in 1992, right? Like doesn't mean they're not a Democrat. It's just like, know what you're, you know, you got to know what you're going to get. Now, just the Bill Maher specific part of this, as someone who has done his show twice, I will just say it is an interesting experience because doing Bill Maher's show is like you've got to be at this state of readiness that's very unique because the show is at its core comedy. And frankly, like I think that he is a guy who he says what he thinks, but he's also a guy who, when there's a choice to make between getting the laugh, and saying what he thinks if it's like a tie i think the tie goes to getting the laugh and i think that's something to know about him
2: but i I think like back to what he was saying i do agree that this dialectic in american society between liberals and and there's a lot of data to back this up by the way about like who who is who is a like quote unquote progressive or liberal versus a, a conservative and it sometimes overlaps with parties or not but like There's like a certain segment of society who are like the people who are always trying the new restaurant, like the Thai fusion restaurant or whatever, and like they're they're traveling to different countries or whatever, and that overlaps with progressivism and liberalism. And then the conservatives are the people who are like, I'm going to the same restaurant every day. I don't want change, yada, yada. And as I've described on this podcast, my mom is a perfect example of a Democrat— who is small C conservative. She got mad at me for saying this the last time I said it, but it's absolutely true. She goes to church on Sunday. She likes to go to the same restaurant. If she had it her way, she wouldn't leave her little neighborhood or whatever. Like Bill Maher, I think, is speaking to that type of person. And my mom, interestingly, loves Bill Maher. He's speaking to these people who are like, man, this change that's happening is really dramatic and I'm not on board for all of it. And I think you could both be sympathetic to some of it and not all of it. Like To me, I think, there's some things that Bill Maher says where I'm like, I agree with you, like the looting thing. But also, like I would say to Bill Maher, who I have I have some respect for, everybody should change. You should always be updating your views. And I don't, I don't want to take him literally that his views have remained totally unchanged. I get what he's saying. But like you have to constantly be asking yourself, like, how do I grow as a human being? And growing doesn't mean becoming more progressive necessarily, but it means like are you updating your views to reflect the learnings that you have as a human being? And that's all I'd ask of him.
1: All right, and now, to conclude whatever we're calling this new segment, which is, you know, where we just talk about something that really doesn't matter that much that's in the news that people are talking about, we got a voicemail about what we should call this. Let's go ahead and listen to that.
0: Hey, Jason and Ravi and Grace. it's Bailey from Knoxville, Tennessee. How are you guys? Hey, listen to the show today. Loved it, of course. I think your segment, the new segment, should just be called Talking Shit, because I'm, I know that you guys want to have positive messages, but I like the new segment. I love the idea, because, um, you know, we all need to have a little gossip, and, yeah, you're just basically shit-talking, um and I love it.
2: I think it's great. Thanks for the nice words. She might not know this, but I got in trouble for messing with Knoxville earlier in our show's existence, and so i just say that I've come full circle. I love Knoxville. love the great state of
1: Tennessee. I really like Bailey's suggestion. I guess my thing is like in my head, I still have this suspended disbelief that the show is kind of clean, which is not true because I, I cuss every episode, but I do yep. still notice when I cuss in an episode. I do still go, yep. oh, and then I kind of keep this mental tracker. Like, well, I don't want to do that too many more times in one episode. Yeah, So I guess I'm a little hesitant to have a segment with a cuss word in it. And maybe that's just- We say talking trash. Yeah, I like it. Talking trash. That Bailey, thank you. You have named this segment "Talking Trash.
2: Has your mind been sprinting for years on end, leaving trails of stress, anxiety, fatigue that are eroding your mental health? Well, if you're nodding along, yes, then it's time to adopt small daily practices that will have a huge impact on your long-term happiness and well-being. And that's easy to learn with Headspace. We all say fine when we don't mean it. Fine isn't really an emotion, is it? How many times have you told yourself you're fine when all you've really felt is anger or sadness or nerves? And that's why we love Headspace. It's scientifically proven to help you manage your feelings and your mental health. In fact, a recent study proved that in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. And whether you want to relieve stress and anxiety, sleep better, improve your focus, Headspace is your everyday dose of mindfulness for real life.
1: However you're feeling, try Headspace at headspace.com slash m54 and get one month free of their entire mindfulness library. This is the best Headspace offer available, so go to headspace.com slash m54 today headspace.com slash m54. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Folks don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating and overeating. You know, one of the things that I talked about in this book that I have coming out is that things like not getting enough sleep, things like eating too much, all that, they're actually very potentially check engine lights On our mental health you don't realize they're connected but your body is trying to flash that light at you and tell you stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more sleep less and grind all the time Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. Well, BetterHelp is customized online
2: therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, so give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Majority 54 listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com m 54 that's dot com slash M54. All right. Well, let's get to the news of the week, Jason. Our inflation numbers came out yesterday. Uh, we record this on a Wednesday as a reminder. The inflation numbers year over year are 8.5%, which is the highest since December 1981. And the monthly increase in inflation was the highest since 2005. You know, there's a lot of positive economic information out there. You know, For example, employers added 431,000 jobs in March, which is the 11th consecutive month with gains. These two things are related, obviously, because if you have low unemployment, that means that the cost of employees goes up. But that's not the only thing going on. You've got supply chains, you've got the Ukraine war, which affects food prices and oil and gasoline prices. You also have uh, increased lockdowns in China and a COVID crisis there, which is affecting everything. You have government spending, pent-up demand from the pandemic. It's all coming together, I think, to wreak havoc on people's pocketbooks. Jason, what are the politics of this?
1: Well, the, the politics of it are like pretty evident in just the fact that the Republicans are calling it an inflation tax. They, I guess, evidently feel like Americans aren't sophisticated enough to understand inflation so they'll just call it an inflation tax like they, you may as well call it inflation acne like i mean it's just like it's about but yeah. i mean i guess that's what they're trying to say though is that like well it's taxing and but they call it biden's inflation tax so the politics of it they're just trying to make biden own it obviously Look, inflation and i'm not an economist but the basic concept of inflation right is that you've lowered the value of the currency and so as a result stuff costs more because it takes more of the currency to purchase things right and yep. and you know you pointed out several ways in which it can happen one of them is that you know when the labor market is tight because a lot of people have jobs then you have to pay more to people in order to get them and then there's more money in the economy the other ways are and one of the biggest ways obviously is government spending when the government spends a lot of money or when they more specifically print more money, it puts more of it out into the world or produce more money because that's probably more accurate in these modern times, puts more money out into the world, brings the value of each uh, unit of currency down, right? Okay. That's what inflation is. And they're wanting to talk about spending. Okay. So I guess my response would be two things. If somebody brings it up, I'd say, all right, where in the economic stimulus during COVID do you feel like too much money was spent, right? Like, let's talk about that. Like, really bring to me the parts that you think caused inflation and where we shouldn't have been having people's backs when they couldn't go into work, because that's obviously part of it. A lot of money was spent there. But then the other part that nobody wants to talk about is that there was a $1.5 trillion tax cut under Trump in 2017 that went to rich people, which is government spending like that's just government spending it's one and a half trillion dollars in a huge subsidy to wealthy people and that is coming due now and so it's pretty disingenuous in my mind for republicans to then blame it on biden because you know when the music stopped he was standing there we have actually a listener
2: voicemail on this subject and you've answered part of it but i want to play it and then i'll come back around to to add anything to it so let's go to our listener
0: Hi, Jason and Ravi. My name is Madison. I'm calling from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I've been a huge fan of Majority 54 since it started a couple of years ago. So I was wondering if you could maybe address kind of inflation, um, what you think the administration should do in order to help the American people. If there's anything they could do, well, like while I understand why prices are rising, it's a little difficult being friends with a lot of um, like right. Leading family members online and friends, I, I just, I didn't know if there's anything you could address, um, maybe in regards to what you think should happen for the administration, if there's like anything they could do to help with like gas prices, food prices, if, if there's, there's any, anything you could think of, um, cause I, I don't know, well, I understand why it's happening, um, I mean, it is affecting me in my day to day, but it's given a lot of fuel to people I know who are very, Um, anti-Biden. Thanks. I love your show. And I appreciate it.
2: So, Jason, you provided, I think, some answer to this, and I'll I'll add a few things. Uh, On the question of gas prices, what the administration could do, the the one thing they can do, they're already doing, which is releasing oil from the strategic reserves. And that's actually having a a big effect on prices. And actually, what you're seeing is that gas prices are starting to go down to pre-Ukraine war levels right now, as of this morning. And so there's a lot of arguments out there. Krugman, for example, in The New York Times this morning was arguing that the oil and gas markets overreacted to that war and that actually the prices are starting to stabilize. My big piece of advice here is like don't feel the need to litigate every in and out of this just yet because there's so much about this inflation story that is going to be determined over the next few months. Like either prices are going to stabilize or they're not. And then we could deal with it either way. There seems to be some consensus, and Krugman's one of these people, that certain aspects of inflation are going to get under control. And this might be the peak of inflation. And he argues that the supply chain elements of inflation are going to stabilize in the next few months and that this might be the peak of that. And he gives all sorts of data on this. One really important one is international shipping rates, for example, are going down. The problem is that so much of inflation is driven by forces outside of goods even if you say, and you included within goods, oil and gas, and also food, which are sometimes not included within the, the inflation numbers. Put all that aside, in inflation right now, services are 57% of what we account for when we look at inflation and what's driving inflation right now. So services are driving a lot of the high inflation numbers right now, meaning people. And so that's not something that's going to be solved by the supply chain issues. And so to me, that is directly tied to the employment numbers and immigration. And so when we're getting to the point where this becomes a debate, assuming that number is still high, I would say two things. Number one is like, are you for bringing more people into this country? Because that's one of the surest ways to stabilize the cost of services is like the cost of services will go down if we have more people to perform those services. And two is, well, what do you want? Do you want actually higher unemployment? Because this is is a cost of having a lot of people employed is they can demand more wages.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great point. Like it's such a catch 22, man. If unemployment hadn't gone down, that's what everybody would be talking about. It's why politics is hard. Like it's just, just as a sidebar, like stuff is really hard. And it's always fascinating to me when people kind of not to like pick on your dad, but like when people, you know, casually or like as a hobby, observe politics and then jump into it at a relatively high level, like running for state Senate. And it's cool. Like, it's exciting when people do that. What's irritating is when sometimes people talk about it or jump into it thinking like, we're all a bunch of idiots who do this. Like, you know, Joe Biden, no matter what you think of him, he's been doing this for like his entire adult life, pretty much. Right. And politics is a profession. Governing is a profession. And this. This stuff is really hard. And, you know, when David Axelrod was on our show just before the election, and he he was saying, you know, when we came into office in 08 or in uh, or January of 09, we felt like we had come into a, the most difficult situation in like 100 years. He's like, what Biden is going to go into is going to be tougher than what we went into. And I just think that's important to remember. It's not necessarily a helpful talking point when you're debating this with somebody. I think you're, the points you made are much better. But I do think it it is okay sometimes to step back and go okay. I want to grant you that these things are problematic. But I also think that no matter who the president is, we should acknowledge that this stuff is like really hard. That sometimes you make progress on one thing and it's like, you know, when there's three holes in a wall and there's water coming through and you only have two hands to plug the holes.
2: Right? The Fed is starting to uh raise interest rates, which basically means like they're increasing the cost of borrowing across the economy and what they're trying to do is cool down the amount of money in supply and the amount of risks people take which has like a trickle down effect on on everything
1: but to the point that this the stuff is hard that's going to affect new housing starts it's going to affect new business starts like there's going to be stuff to criticize about that
2: yeah and part of that is they're trying to they're trying to create what's called a soft landing which means raising interest rates without triggering a recession now the record here isn't good Politico did an analysis on this and said that nine times the Fed has attempted this, raising interest rates to cool the economy. Eight out of nine times it triggered a recession. So just warning people that this is really hard and that they should be prepared for even rockier (laughs) days ahead, which I know is not what people want to hear, but that's just the reality of where we are right now.
1: To the point of how hard this is, We've had this voicemail about inflation sitting there for a while, and we've both been like, "It's a hard one to address." <laughs> now yeah. I, I think we kind of did, but like, yeah, you know, I mean, even like, even on this podcast, we're like, "That's a hard one to address." Let alone like, if you're president, to get a handle around, like, it's it's a tough issue.
2: Well, let's talk about another tough issue. In the great state of Michigan, we were greeted with news this week that uh, the defendants. In the case involving Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, these are people who uh, were alleged to have uh, plotted to kidnap the governor of Michigan, that there was a not guilty verdict for two of the defendants and a hung jury on some of the charges for two other defendants in that case. And this was surprising to a lot of people. The short version of this is this was uh, a federal case and they basically, the FBI was involved in this case from the very beginning and had a lot of informants. There were a dozen informants on this case. And the case essentially came down to a question of, were all these informants swirling around this case instigating this act, meaning entrapping the people involved, or were they just merely witnesses to it? And the defense successfully implanted reasonable doubt in the jury to say that, hey, it's possible that this was a case of entrapment. Jason, are you concerned about this case? Is this justice being done? Or is this you know a travesty of justice that's going to lead to further acts of political violence?
1: I actually am encouraged by this in a weird way, which is surprising, but let me explain. First of all, it's important to remember that they got a couple of convictions first, and then they eventually got to this case, to these defendants. And from what I've read of the case, it looks like there were a lot of weaknesses in the prosecution's case. And so that's why I'm encouraged is that I think if this were not a domestic terrorism case, I'm not sure, like, it's not to say that the prosecutors didn't think that they were guilty of the act. I'm just not sure that they would have been so confident of a conviction that they would have brought it. But Mm -hmm. it felt to me like one where the justice department was saying, you know what, whether we feel like this is a a really, really strong case of trial or not, it is so important that we have to try. And that, that to me, I find encouraging because that shows an aggressive posture towards domestic terrorism. Now, I don't know if domestic terrorists are going to get that message from it. Yeah. (laughs) But but that's the message they should get from it. Because at the end of the day, if they're willing to take you to trial when they're not sure they're going to win, that means they really want to get you.
2: Yeah, I 100% agree. And and let me... Let me paint a picture for the audience here. You have a dozen or more informants and then you had six potential defendants and actually two of those defendants pled. So essentially you have as many as 14 plus cooperating witnesses relative to four people on trial at the federal level. There's a separate state cases, but I'll put those to the side. Put this in your head for a second. If you're a defense attorney now, you're looking at this and saying, well, most of the people in these rooms are actually people cooperating in some way. And it's not that hard to go from that to say, well, they're engineering a situation where the plot is moving along and all these people are incentivized. Some of these people were paid. Like, so Big Dan, who's like the key uh, informant in this case who, who testified under oath, was alleged to have been the person who organized... The trip to the the governor's house that was like a sort of key act here. Now, it, it's not clear whether he did or not, but that was a big source of contention here. It was like whether he was the one who actually suggested that they go to the governor's house and do a stakeout and all this. All this to say is that there is a big question at the heart of this case, which is like how many people need to be involved in a conspiracy that are cooperating with the government for it to be entrapment and what kind of acts are going to be entrapment? It's really hard to imagine people in this room not like being like who are involved in this conversation not in some way being suggestive the more of them you put in the room the more of a likelihood of entrapment now the other piece here is i i really feel for law enforcement because it's the the question of the safety of a governor and they swooped in before there was an actual date for the kidnapping and a lot of people criticized the government saying they should have waited for more details to emerge but when you're talking about the safety of the governor i i sympathize with them stepping in pretty early to try to prevent any violence
1: yeah and i think you, you got to hand it to the defense in this case. Like they clearly did a, a good job. They did their job and the prosecution did their best. And it's probably pretty hard to convince a jury that a bunch of right-wing militia guys are super credible witnesses, uh, right. you know, in this case, like it wasn't hard to impeach their credibility. So anyway, it, you know, back yeah. to the, to the start of it, I just, yeah, I find it really encouraging that they're going after the hard to win cases too.
2: Speaking of hard to win cases, we have the January 6th committee and there's been some news this week on the activities of the committee. So there's a New York Times article by Michael Schmidt and Luke Broadwater about the fact that the leaders of the House committee investigating the Capitol attack are split on whether to make a referral, a criminal referral of Trump to the Department of Justice. And it seems like everybody's in agreement that... There were criminal acts that Trump did, but they're split on whether to make a referral. Now, this is not a binding act in any way. It's kind of symbolic. Like the Department of Justice, which is already investigating this, is not bound by a referral. And it's not clear whether the referral even provides any new evidence because the Department of Justice could request and access anything that the January 6th committee has. How much does this matter? Like should they make the referral? Like people like people are arguing that if they make the referral that it politicizes this investigation. I'm not really convinced of that. Where do you come down on this?
1: There's no world in which this investigation won't be politicized by the targets of it. Like, I mean, it's just that, that ship has sailed, right? Like this is just one of those things and it actually comes around in politics more than people uh, acknowledge where just put your head down and do your job the way you're supposed to do it and that's the best politics. And it appears like from anybody who's paid attention to anything over the last six years, that yeah, there was criminal activity and yes, it should be referred. And at the end of the day, I think if you're on that committee, you have an obligation to history. Like You can't get a bunch of politicians together and give them a task and say, also try and make the right political move. That's not a thing that can get done. So just make the right move and it'll be easier to defend politically as a result. Uh, I think it's notable that Cheney said that it is the most bipartisan and like most collaborative committee that she served on in Congress like it says that people are taking it pretty seriously.
2: Yeah, and like, I agree with you. If if they I don't know what they're looking at, but if they truly believe that Trump committed a criminal act, refer it. Now, I would add that the politics aren't as bad as they think. Number one, if they don't refer it, that will be used against them. They'll be like, "Hey, well, you didn't even refer this. You didn't think it was criminal." And the other thing is this is a bipartisan committee and it's not as bipartisan as we would all want, but What Cheney said is actually very helpful for the politics. Not that that's the first goal, but just when you're selling this eventually, that is a helpful piece of information. So we'll we'll be monitoring this. I would say that this happens in the context of Tish James, her civil investigation of the Trump seems to be moving along. Alvin Bragg here in Manhattan, there's been a lot of turbulence in the criminal investigation in New York against Trump. There were the lead prosecutors here in New York City. Who are investigating Trump, who resigned because they said that Bragg did not agree to bring charges. And then Bragg, I think, has kind of backpedaled recently in the past week or two and said, hey, no decision has been made. My read on this, and, and full disclosure, I think I've mentioned this many times on the podcast, is that he was a candidate that I was very involved in this campaign. And I've also very publicly. Uh, requested that he recuse himself from this investigation, which is this is why you should recuse yourself is because he wouldn't be in the middle of this. Those career prosecutors would have been able to make that call independent of him. And this is the exact scenario I was worried about, which is he now has made an independent judgment about this case, it seems, that that there's not enough evidence to bring criminal charges against Trump. All of the politics are in favor of him bringing these charges. I want to be clear on that all of the politics are in favor of him bringing these charges. Now, everybody's bearing down on him. People are talking about primary challenges against him, like the all the op-ed pages are taking him to task, every blue check mark is criticizing him. And now he's saying he's going to revisit that decision. This is what I'm worried about. It's the politicization of a prosecution. This is why I'm for recusals, and I'm concerned about the direction of that case and I just continue to be concerned. I, of course, want Trump brought to justice, but these things have to be um, impartial legal investigations.
1: Ravi, when I think about the lineup of ads that we have on the show, we're like, here's how you can get online therapy. Here's how you can meditate. And then now we're like, here's AG1. This is for your physical body, which is going to help your mental health. We are just hooking people up with the tools to just live their best most optimized mental and physical life.
2: Yeah, we are heading into the spring right now. People are outside, they're working out, they're going for long walks, but what you put in your body matters more than anything else. And to me, there's nothing more important than Athletic Greens AG-1 because it is that nutritional insurance. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or anything artificial. So it's your time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. It's the first thing I do every single day. And that's it. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. It's no secret our audience loves Grace Lynch, who is one of our producers of the show, but also now uh, sometimes co-host of the show. And I just want you to know, audience, we have asked her to be on as much as she possibly can. But she's busy because she has other responsibilities and she has this really amazing show. Jason, you want to tell
1: them about it? You should check out season two of her show As She Rises. Sometimes the way we talk about climate change feels untouchable. Other times we're so close to it that it's exhausting. How do we understand the climate crisis when we're living through it? Enter As She Rises, a podcast centering native voices and women of color that personalizes the elusive magnitude of climate change. Each week, hear from poets and experts local to one place in the U.S. and territories. From the Florida wetlands to the coral reefs of American Samoa and the Pueblo Nation, we learn how climate change is affecting hometowns and what communities are doing to address it. And best of all, you get it all from Grace Lynch. So listen and follow As She Rises on wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so another thing that happened this week that I think is worth breaking down for a moment is this conversation that Jonathan Swan from Axios had with Mitch McConnell. Ravi, you and I are both big admirers of Jonathan Swan and his interview style. I think one of the strengths of it is that he asks earnest questions and tries not to be in an argument, and he lets people kind of hang themselves with their own words. But there's this clip, and I want to go through it and just kind of break it down like game film so people can understand exactly what's happening.
3: You are known for playing a ruthless style of politics. Where do you draw your moral red lines?
1: (laughs) Okay. All right. So what's happened right here is Swan has introduced a term for which uh, McConnell doesn't have an existing talking point in his mental drop down menu in his brain. Like the, The briefing binder that he reviewed on his way to this event did not have a question about moral red lines. So what he offers instead is a sort of villainous little laugh to the words Moral Red Lines. And what he's doing there is he's thinking of a way to buy time to figure out what to say. So we're going to hear now what he says while he's stalling.
4: I didn't realize I was known for playing a ruthless. I thought my my wife thinks I'm a really nice guy. My kids like me. Um, I got a lot of friends.
3: four so far. Okay. Okay.
4: I'm shocked to hear
2: such a <laughs> comment. So this is a classic politician tactic where they're just like, they're folksy and, and they, they try to laugh it off. I think Swan, if he stops here, this is a huge failure. But what I like about Swan is that he's, he's he'll make a joke, he'll keep the audience engaged, but... As you'll see, he doesn't let him off the hook.
1: Well, what he also does here is he doesn't allow McConnell to shift it from the question, which is about moral red lines, to where he wants to be, which is responding to his critics. Because his critics are the ones saying ruthless tactics. And McConnell knows how to respond to that. He's been doing it for his entire career. But Swan wants him to respond to the philosophical question that he's asked, and he brings him back to it.
3: Let's just take as a premise, and I think the audience might agree with me, that there are some people, maybe some substantial people in this country who who, who might agree with that assertion.
4: I'm sure you could find some So moral, some moral could, red
3: yeah. lines, where do you draw them?
4: Um, I'm perfectly comfortable with the way I have conducted my political career. And... Uh I'd be happy to respond to any specificity you want to apply to the term. What was it? Moral red lines. Moral red line.
1: Okay, stop. <laughs> All
2: right. What was it again? <laughs> uh, yeah. It's like almost like it's like you know the Germans have more like words that, right, that uh, like words that don't compute to like an English translation. Like Schadenfreude. Yeah, he just doesn't. He doesn't. He's like, what? Like moral red lines? That, I don't. I don't know. I don't know I, of what you speak.
1: I don't know. That's mistake number one that McConnell has made right there, which is to act as if those words, moral red lines, are bile in his mouth, and he's never heard this strange tongue that Swan is speaking. But the second mistake he's made is he invites Swan to give him specifics. Now Swan was going to do that anyway, but now. How does McConnell act like he's under attack when he just said, give me an example to respond to?
3: Yeah. Well, Well, let me give you- I'm very
4: comfortable with my moral red line.
3: Let me give you one specific. Help me understand this. I watched your speech last year in February on the Senate floor after the second impeachment vote on Donald Mm -hmm. Trump, and it was an extraordinary speech. Mm -hmm. You spoke very powerfully against the most powerful figure in your party, the, the president. Um, And you said Donald Trump's actions preceding the January 6th insurrection were a, quote, disgraceful dereliction of duty, and that he was practically and morally responsible, morally responsible, your words, for provoking the events of that day.
1: So right now, McConnell is doing what every politician does, which is figuring out not just what answer they're going to give to this question, but Which pre-prepared answer to a different question are they going to give? Because he's, he's anticipating where is he going with this? And he knows where he's going because he's been asked this a dozen times. So you're about to hear Swan shift to ask him the question that he really wants to ask. And then you're going to hear McConnell give the answer that he gives all the time to this and that he assumes will be enough. And we'll yeah. see what happens after that.
2: That's that's the tactic, by the way. We heard it before when he was like, I'm perfectly comfortable with the way I've conducted myself. He's probably I mean, said that
1: 500 times in his career.
2: Yeah, these people retreat to generalities whenever they're pushed. And I think the question is, as an interviewer, can you get them to go beyond that? So look, let's listen to that.
3: How do you go from saying that to two weeks later saying you'd absolutely support Donald Trump if he's the Republican nominee in 2020?
4: Well, as a Republican leader of the Senate, it should not be a front page headline that I will re- support the Republican nominee for president.
3: After you've said that about him, I think it's astonishing. I,
4: I think I have an obligation to support the, the nominee of my of my party. And
3: um, Is there anything I, they I, could do? I
4: that? will. That will mean that whoever the nominee is, has gone out and earned the nomination.
1: You're starting to hear a little bit of panic in McConnell's voice because he gave his thing and then Swan said well, after you said that, and McConnell just acted like he didn't hear it and then kind of said it again a different way. And now he's going, how the hell do I get out of this? Because Swan, because so so many other people are like, But yeah, but but he did this and he did this and he did this. But Swan doesn't do that. Swan is like asking questions like, is there anything he could do? And Swan is not accepting the premise of the bullshit talking point. Right. Instead of instead of accepting the idea that the Republican leader of the Senate naturally has some sort of contractual obligation to support uh, the Republican nominee. He just like basically blows that up as an absurd thing to say. And that's where it goes off the rails from McConnell. Yeah,
2: and I would say like my only critique of Swan in this interview is the question, is there anything he could do is the most important question here. Mm-hmm. And Swan doesn't sit on that question. Like McConnell kind of wiggles out of like answering that specifically. Like it's obvious he dodged it, but I would have asked it more and more times. I would have been like, Look, tell me, like what is it if he commits murder? Like what like what is there? You're saying that it's just your obligation to support the nominee of the party. What about you as an American? Here's know?
1: here's the reason I think that he didn't ask that because a lot of other people have fallen into that trap with McConnell, and he gets out of it with, "Look, I don't I don't engage in hypotheticals." And and he knew he knows McConnell has that arrow in his quiver to pull out, so he's like, "I'm not going to give you that. I know you have the move to respond to that."
2: But here's what I would say back to that: You've already said it's a hypothetical. You said if he was the nominee, that's a hypothetical. So we're already there.
1: It's true, but I still think, but but then McConnell goes, well, look, I'm saying, I'm not saying hypothetically this person, I'm saying any nominee of my party, you know? All right. Anyway, let's see where he goes next.
3: Okay. But Donald Trump earned it last time. And I'm just trying to understand, you know, what you say matters. You're you're a very important voice in this country. You're the leader of your party. And you seem to hold two concurrent conflicted no, positions uh, which uh, is
4: not at all inconsistent not, not at all inconsistent but I stand by everything I said I, on I understand, but January 6th and everything I said on February the 13th I
3: understand that but, but what I want to understand which I haven't heard you address is
4: because I don't get to pick the Republican nominee for president they're elected by the Republican voters I, all over the country.
3: I fully understand that, but take Liz Cheney, for example. You want to
4: spend some more time on this as well?
3: I actually do, because I I, I actually... (laughs) No, no, I genuinely want to understand this. I really want to understand how you think about this, because Liz Cheney, who has the same view of you as of January 6th, she said she doesn't want Donald Trump anywhere near the White House, and she's going to work to not make that happen, because she thinks that there are some things more important than party loyalty.
4: Uh, Well, maybe you ought to be talking to Liz Cheney.
3: No, but I'm not trying to... I really, it's not a gotcha. I'm just actually trying to understand, like, is there any threshold for you of, of what some of the do on you a know, level?
4: you know, I say many things I'm sure people don't understand.
1: That's the white flag. As soon as he heard Liz Cheney, he knew he was screwed because he's just said, as a Republican, I have no choice. And he, well, what about this Republican, who's one of the leaders of the party, was in leadership, and he's like, well, now I'm screwed. So now I got to do like an evil Bond villain laugh and try and pop smoke out of here.
2: Yeah, agreed. A super informative interview. I think it's just like a how to guide from Jonathan Swan. Also, everything's better with an Australian accent, I would say. Like, I think the British get all the credit. I think the Australian's like the better version of the accent. It's like a little bouncier, a little bit more accessible.
1: You know, I think that the lesson out of this, though, and it's what people can take home, particularly the situations where you're not trying to convince the person you're talking to, but you're like at a family dinner and you're trying to convince the other people not to go their radical direction, you're not looking for a moment. That's like out of a few good men where it's like, yeah, I ordered the code red. You're just looking for a moment where they clearly can no longer defend their position. And then you don't have to spike the ball. You don't have to hammer them into the ground. You've gotten it to that point. You're good. You're done. Just move on. Be yeah. the bigger person. Yeah, that
2: question. Is there anything they, they would do? That's the question. Put that in your quiver. Mm-hmm. Ask that to people in your life. I've I've used this one before
1: all right well we'd love to uh answer some more voicemails next week and in the weeks to come so feel free to leave us one these ones from madison and bailey were great you can reach us at 508-687-2589 508-687-2589 by the way people are always asking why is there this i think it's like a massachusetts area code i'm not sure and uh the answer is like i don't know one of our producers set this up, and that's what was available at the time. So don't read too much into it, people. 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.
2: Majority54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agvaniam. Theme music provided by kemic Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Lucas